I'm going to read scripture today. The scripture, if you want to open your Bibles or your Bible app on your phone, uh, is from John chapter 3, 22 to 36. John chapter 3, 22 to 36. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. So this is the section immediately preceding uh, last week's text on Nicodemus. And the word of the Lord says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained with them there and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Bow your heads with me. God, you have so humbled me particularly in preparing this message this Sunday. Perhaps you've humbled many of us this week, either through your word or through our prayers or through our own hearts. God, I pray that we would sit here today releasing our ugliness to you, rejoicing in the goodness that you would create a space in our hearts where your spirit is abiding, where your very essence is present. We need no mediator, no priest anymore except Jesus. We need no sacrifice anymore except his, God. God, help us to lean on the fact 
but that means that we are completely reliant on him. God, as I speak today, help me to be so dependent on the heart that Jesus brings to me and not my own. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not hard to see that the passage today is a passage that's primarily concerned with the idea of jealousy or envy. Probably the loudest statement that is made is this. Look, he has something and everyone's going to him. He is baptizing. And cried out in frustration in agony. And I think many of us, if we asked ourselves, if I asked you today, if I said, look, did you walk in today saying, I'm jealous, I'm envious, I would wager to say most of you said, no, I'm not a jealous person, I'm not an envious person. Those people are bad, I'm nothing like that, I try not to do that, I know that's a bad thing to do. But I would guess that if I asked you a different question, you would say yes. And here's the question. This week, or even this morning, did you find that in your heart you were discontent with your lot in life? That in some way you just wish that this and this and this thing could be different and your life would be so much better right now? That if you just had these and these and these things that you have seen that other people have, that your life would just feel that much sweeter That inside of you is this void of discontentment and it's been fed by the narratives of the world that have bombarded you and that you have fed into and believed in that I should have these things. Why don't I have them? So you see there's a connection between our own discontentment and jealousy and envy. That in our discontentment we're yearning for something we don't have. And in that moment, everything else fades away. And all we can see is the one thorn in our side, right? The one thing that we're so frustrated with. It clouds our vision entirely. And that's the case today as we look at John's disciples. Now, this series, we've gone through uh, conversations between Jesus and different people. Right? And so this series that I've t- talked about is being called uh, Conversations Between the Creator and the Created. You'll notice that Jesus is nowhere to be seen in this passage. In fact, as I was planning this series, I skipped over this passage. I said, we'll just go straight to the Samaritan woman. I read through this and I just stopped. Something stopped me because it spoke so deeply to me. And it was this phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I said, there's wisdom there. This isn't a conversation between the creator and the created directly from Jesus to his people. But this is a deeply important conversation that is being had here. What is the conversation in this chapter? I'd call it side chatter, right? Jesus has moved into the neighborhood. Jesus has come into the presence, God in the flesh. And where is he in this story? He's across the river. And what is everybody doing while Jesus is across the river? Well, they're doing what we all do. 
when we see someone successful somewhere else. What we're all inclined to do, we talk about it, right? We begin to gossip, chatter, evaluate. They just do what humans do, and they begin to talk, and they begin to wonder. They begin to listen to the murmurs that bubble up in their souls when they're confronted with the presence of who? Jesus. Now, is Jesus doing anything bad here? No, it says he's baptizing. In fact, if you read ahead just a little bit past this section, John summarizes directly what was happening. He says this. He gives us a repeat. He gives us an interpretation of himself in chapter 4, verse 1. He says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So that's, that's the, the crux of it. There's just, there's just more happening on the other side of the river. More disciples being more made. More good things are happening. And it says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So I, I want you to visualize the image. Here's what's happening. John and his people, his group of followers, the rabbi and his disciples, are here baptizing people into the purification, baptism, under the water, up, to cleanse them of their sin, to prepare them, for the coming Messiah. That's John's whole mission. And across the river is the Messiah himself with his disciples baptizing people. But not necessarily, yes, for the coming of the Messiah. There's a, there's a whole different thing going on. Messiah, that's, that's God himself. But the optics from the disciples of John are this. Rabbi one, baptizing. Rabbi two, baptizing. Why is he getting all the people? Why is he getting the crowds? That's what they're seeing. And they're getting jealous. Because he's making more of them. So that's the scene that we're in. John, the writer, understands this. He understands the Christian battle of discontentment. The thing about our discontent is that we will look around and we may become discontent by other people who are not Christians. And then we may sort of bolster ourselves up and say, well, that's fine. They're not Christians. They don't know Jesus. Right? I have Jesus, so I'm okay. I don't have to compare myself to them. But then we see other people that are doing the right thing. Other Christians who have answered prayers who have the health that we don't have, who have the kids that we don't have, who have the house that we don't have, who seem to have the stick-with-it-ness that we don't have. And we get frustrated. And John says, I understand that battle of discontentment that happens when you understand in some sense that there is a presence of Jesus happening, but you don't see it happening in your life, that you've labeled it such that it's happening across the river from you, and you begin to listen to murmurs. Now, in, I want to, part of this series, what I'm wanting to do always is teach us how to read our own Bibles, to teach us how to interpret our own Bibles. So I'm going to, I'm going to back up here a little bit, and I'm going to read from John chapter 1, because John gives us plenty of tools to understand the story he's telling. He wants us to understand 
Not just that this is a, a narrative full of characters and we have to sort of parse out who's good, who's bad, what's going on, but there are clear tools to understand it based on their actions. He gives us a rubric, a way to learn and see what's really going on. He says this in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, so we're seeing that in this chapter, right? Even the disciples of John don't really comprehend Certainly the Jew who's arguing with them doesn't comprehend that this is the Messiah. Okay, so we have two parties. We have, we have the Jew arguing with the disciples about purification who doesn't understand. And we have the disciples of John himself who don't really understand. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So John's very clear. He makes things, he makes things into binaries, right? One or the other. And he helps us read light, darkness. People who receive, people who do not receive. That's the big picture that he's giving us. Perhaps it'd be helpful to look at Nicodemus, who in the last chapter was somebody who did not receive. He came at night. He heard Jesus. He was curious. He had a discontentment. But when he learned about Jesus, he did not seem to receive him. You get a sense that Nicodemus just left after hearing the good news of Jesus. He did not give up his power and privilege to follow Jesus, but he left back into the night not receiving him. But here in this story, we go out into the daylight, and Jesus, it looks like all good things, right? Jesus is baptizing. There's lots of water. It looks like there's droves of people out in the wilderness, away from all of the, the craziness of Jerusalem. So in a sense in this story, we have some hope, and we say, wow, here's where the, where the good life must be happening. That in this place with John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, that everything's going to be good from God that there's going to be no real problems, no, no real reasons for fear. That we've stepped out of that and away from that. And of course we know that that's not the case as Christians. We know that once we become Christians, it is not that suddenly everything becomes good. And so I think what John's trying to say here is he's saying, look, if you interpret every story through the frame of my cosmic story, it will help you see your right place in this. This is really important. John is showing the cosmic conflict in chapter 1. He's showing the eternal truth of how all people will fall in relationship to a holy God who becomes Jesus in the flesh. They will either be for him or they will be against him. It's not complicated. And I think what John is showing us is that envy here is a humongous distraction. That discontentment is a humongous distraction. Because look at what happens. You have people that are, are listening to whose voice? 
John's disciples are listening to whose voice? Not John the Baptist, not Jesus. They're listening to the voice of an establishment Jew, as one translation says it, of a follower of the Pharisees, of a man who has his power and it's threatened. And he's coming to them and he's saying and asking questions about their purification. And clearly what he seems to be saying, it doesn't tell us every sentence that he says, but it says this, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And then they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who was across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and he's getting more disciples. So some seed has been planted in the disciples of John's mind by who? Somebody who received God? or somebody who is not receiving God. It's being planted by somebody who follows the enemy. And they're listening to it. And they're growing discontent by it. So being way out in the wilderness, being about around a bunch of faithful people that are all getting baptized does not insulate them from what in Lord of the Rings is called the many watchful eyes of the Dark Lord, right? There's this concept that the devil is looking and searching everywhere. In Job 2, when there's a, there's a conversation between God and Satan, he says, where have you come from? And Satan says, from roaming through the earth, walking back and forth in it. So we know that that it's the job of the Lord of those who do not receive to roam around with his many tendrils, with his many watchful eyes, seeking to distract us. And he will do this by creating a seed of discontentment and envy. And in, in order to understand that, we must see that there is a cosmic conflict going on, that there is a spiritual war in play. John is doing that in chapter 1. That's how he's telling us, please read this with this in mind. Or for us as Christians in the church, please live your life with this cosmic conflict in mind. So even the header of this in your Bibles may say something like, John exalts the Christ, or John's sermon exalting the Christ. And that's a wonderful heading. But I think it's clear here that probably the fundamental heading that we need to understand is that JB's disciples are getting jealous of JC's disciples. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening. Doesn't that seem ludicrous? Doesn't that seem ridiculous? Can't you see what's happening? These are two good groups of disciples doing good things. And guess what's just happened? Through the lies and the deceit and the suggestions, they've been pitted against each other. In fact, there's clear, there's clear indication that there is real worldly evil about to happen. In verse 24, it says, For John had not been yet been put in prison. In the other Gospels, we find that John will, yes, he will be put in prison, and he eventually will have his head served on a platter to the king. That the worldly powers at play are truly evil. 
And that John won't have that happen for any reason other than that he speaks out and he holds his ground against them. Little sidetrack. That story happens because Herod, the, the ruler of part of, of the kingdom of the former kingdom of Israel, the, the area of Judea, <laughs> he takes his brother's wife as his own. And John sees that and he goes, it's not okay. And then he has his, his, his brother's wife has her daughter dance for him in this lewd dance. And just attract and pull on him every gross desire, his every evil side. And eventually she requests that he have John the Baptist killed. That there's just utter darkness and grossness around and what, in this context of this gross political state of this, this real, real problem for these disciples, Rabbi, because there had to have been murmurs about this. There had to have been rumors about this already. He was an unpopular, unwanted presence. And here they are getting jealous of other faithful followers of Jesus. So we must see that in in our seeds of discontentment, what is brewing, what is brewing there is a field that the devil is trying to, to plow and create to be ripe for his own manifestations, his own fruit. Haddon Robinson's a preacher uh, who teaches preachers. And he has a, I listened to a sermon by him that had a great bottom, a great uh, through line. He said this. He says, the point of the sermon is this. Remembering, remember the about the businessman who forgot the bottom line? When we are discontent, we are like a businessman who has forgot his own bottom line. We forgot what the story's really about. Another way of looking at it is this. That the disciples, these disciples had been purified and baptized themselves. That they had been brought into a born-again life. But what were they not doing? They had painted a target on their back. But they weren't armoring up. When we come into the faith as Christians, when we say, I believe in God, we think sometimes that it's all going to be roses. Just people getting baptized all around the place and it's all going to be so wonderful. And we're going to be so protected by Jesus. And we forget that we just painted a target on our back. There's armor that you have to put on. There's a fight that we have to have. So I want to talk a little bit about that fight. That this week, I guarantee you, you will walk out, perhaps right out of this building, and you will face discontentment. Something that you wish was different. You know already that first you need to name that as a distraction. That that is the root of things that will become envy, that will become jealousy, that will become anger. Name that as a distraction. And then come and repent for it. But I think we tend to think of repentance as this. We say, repentance is me saying, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. And then we hope for the forgiveness of somebody else so that we cannot feel bad anymore. 
and we can keep going about our life because that was so yucky, can it please be gone? If you like me, then everything's better and it will all be okay. And we treat God the exact same way with our repentance. We say, I'm going to repent. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I remember Jesus loves me. Oh, good. Man, I feel so much better. Thank you. We don't change anything. We don't put any armor on. We don't name any of the distractions for what they are in the cosmic sense. We just simply get this little hit and move on. And what we're stuck in is an infinite loop of being in the same place of progress in our pilgrimage. The same place of infancy in our Christianity. And I think we should think of that repentance as a lowercase repentance, right? As just sort of a quote repentance. And I want to urge you to a deeper sense of repentance, a capital R repentance. And I want you to work through this in, your, in our repentance, in our thinking. One, first we admit our sin. Okay. You're like, that's nothing new, John. I know about that. Okay. We see it in the context of the big biblical story. We realize that we are creatures of desire. And that desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, we're hardwired to desire. But it is the desiring the thing that is against the will of God that is bad. That our sin is to seek to steal fame. Fame that is not given, but we seek to steal it. See, the disciples and followers of John the Baptist knew that his job was to cry out in the wilderness, making straight the ways of the Lord. And that's exactly what they were helping everyone do. But it wasn't good enough. They wanted to steal some glory. They wanted to have what was happening across the river. And John immediately rebukes them. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But here's why he rebukes them. Because John is saying, look, you need to beware of the creep. Let me talk about the creep. I'm not saying like a creepy person. Okay? The creep. The slow movement of things that creep in around you. In our, in our cohorts with the guys... I, I was talking about this, and I was re trying to realize, as we were repenting of our sins together, as I was sitting among them and saying, guys, this is what I need to repent of this week. I said, it's weird when there's not any one particular thing that I say, this is so egregious and so bad. But I say, guys, here's what happened this week when I thought about it. It was giving a little ground here, giving a little ground here, staying up a little too late every night, tired every morning. Right? Letting go some Bible reading in the morning. Letting go again. Letting go again. Pretty soon losing track of where, where I am. The creep is looking too long at one particular image that you shouldn't look at. Watching one more show when you should turn it off. The creep is getting angry and embracing the impulse and going for it. Instead of shutting it down and repressing it. There are so many ways that in our lives we have this creep coming in and we have just said, we're tired, it's 2020, give me a break. 
And what we can see about this creep is that it fractures the body from the head. It fractures the church as the body from the head of Christ. It fractures our own bodies from our own heads, right? Our bodies begin to act for themselves and not for what we know better. It actually turns ourselves on our mission. It turns us against ourselves, just like these disciples are doing. It creates an infighting. It distracts us to a battle that is completely unnecessary. The creep is like this. Megan and I were watching uh, this actually really interesting historical show. Uh, it's, based on, it's based on English history, early English history, like 880. It's called The Last Kingdom. And, and the idea from this first pilot episode was that the Vikings, the Danes, are invading in northern England. And actually, in, in northern England, uh, all of these tribes, sort of factions, groups, are, are all led by different sort of, I don't know what you would call them, uh, not kings, but maybe dukes or different leaders. And those people in northern England were firmly Christian. They said, God is on our side. And so they, when faced with the Vikings, they said, we're going to go out and meet them in battle with all of our troops. We're going to face them down. And back on the hill is their priest praying over them. God, may they win this war. And the Vikings, incredibly astute warriors, as they are incredibly learned and disciplined warriors, stack all their shields up in like a wall. And it's too late at this point. The, the, the English warriors are going down this hill towards these shields. And they can sense something isn't quite right. And they begin to just battle and hack on this wall. And the priest is up there praying. They are so convinced that God will miraculously somehow come to their victory. And what happens? But they get all lined up against this wall of shields. And out of this ravine comes the other half of the Viking army with their wall of shields, sticking them between them. And then one last group of Vikings comes out through the middle and just destroys them all from behind their back. Just massacres them. When we walk into battle without any sense of what the enemy has in store for us, with how real this battle is. But instead we say, I have repented. God is on my side. But in fact, we're just broken, gross people inside. And we go down into this ravine and we try and fight this battle. What will happen is we will get squeezed and destroyed because we've painted the target on our back, but we haven't armored up. That with repentance comes a certain level of necessary change and discipline. That the devil will bait us like that small faction of forces. That he will present himself as small and conquerable. None of them had their shields up when they went down that hill. right? They were just a group of people standing there waiting to get killed. And then as soon as the devil has them in his clutches, he will shield up and be the most clever, the most thoughtful, a strategist. 
because he has you now and it's hard for you to get loose and the creep is the start of that the discontentment is the start of that i think when john gives us this big picture in chapter three he's presenting us kind of a theology and i don't want to bore us with that word too much except to say this i know that sometimes you guys hear that word and you might think that's a seminary thing that's an academic thing but what John is doing in chapter 1 is he's saying, here's the theology. Here's how, this, here's, how the, here's how the cosmic war works. And he's tying everything to the invisible. He's saying there is an invisible beyond the visible. There is this cosmic space. And you have to see it in reference to who Christ is, who the cross is. And you also have to see it in reference to who you are. So as we repent, and ex- we have to examine our view of God. And we have to see who are we in light of him. And how does the devil work? How is the devil trying to take us down? I think of almost every story in the Bible could be linked from Genesis 3, which is the fall in the garden, to the story, and the cross to the story, right? Because Genesis 3 informs us of who we are and why we need to repent, and the cross informs us of how we get out of this mess. That if you go through the entire timeline of the Bible, there will be links between those two things to every story. But in fact, John in chapter 1 is just linking to that story, right? He's just linking to those two things. A right view of who man is and a right view of who God is. Because the serpent in Genesis 3 works a lot like these establishment Jews coming and talking and having this little side conversation with John's disciples. Let's just revisit the text really quickly. What does the serpent say? We know this story well. Genesis 3 verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any fruit of the garden? So the first thing he does is he asks a question that infers First, that God said something he didn't say. Because Eve corrects him and he said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she actually corrects him. She says, no, no, I think you've got it wrong. She got a little bit of armor. She says, I think you've got it wrong. But then... He goes and he's opened a little hole and he goes and he says this. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent essentially says this. First, he tells us something that isn't true about God. Sort of distract us. He says, this is, this is what your God's doing. We go, I don't, I don't think so, but now we're looking at him, right? It's a red herring. It's not a true thing at all. It's just look over here. And we go, what? And then he says, your God's wrong. 
what he said is incorrect. And if we don't have that armor on, what comes next will get us every time. He says, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He tries to paint this picture that says this, when the devil tempts us, when the creep comes in, it will first tell us something about God we know is not true. And even if, it, if we have the gumption to correct him, if we are weak, he will keep trying. And he will say, no, actually, couldn't you believe it? I think your God is wrong. And then, if we don't leave at that moment, if we stand and say, tell me more, which is what Eve's doing, he will say, here's the thing. Your God's not all-powerful, and he's not all-loving. Your God's actually insecure, and he wants to imprison you. But that's not the way it has to be. There's a way out, and it's if you take the power. Those are his tactics, and that's what he does in comparison, in discontentment, is that he takes, this creep is like somewhere between, for me, this creep of sin where you're slowly allowing it in, where you're not being good at addressing it, is somewhere between you won't surely die, right, which is why you allow it, Okay, yeah, I won't, I won't surely die. Okay, maybe I'll... Okay, I'm listening. And it's edging towards being like God. It's not being God. You haven't fully gone off the reservation. You've just said, okay, I won't surely die. So it's not, it's not the worst thing. But we need to realize there's a cosmic battle. Verse 3 Chapter 3, verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there's always, there's always in Jesus' words, there's always in the scriptures, these blessings and these curses that say, as soon as you begin to think what the devil is telling you, I'm going to remind you from whatever direction works back to where you need to be. It might be blessings that help you, but more often than not, it's probably the curses. And as a church, we have honestly, by and large, let go of the curses of Scripture. When we, when we talk about the Beatitudes, we say, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. But the end of the whole sermon is woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. That some of the best examination we have to do of God, of our view of God, is to realize that what the devil says isn't true. That God is powerful. That he isn't insecure. And that actually, if we do not receive him, there are consequences. And so I want to just talk about two ways to correct our view of God. I feel like in some ways this is, a, this is a difficult passage to make clear for me right now. I'm, I'm struggling to make this really clear. So I want to I give the bottom line of what I said. When we come to repent, 
what we are not doing so often is rightly placing God where he ought to be. But we're believing still in where the devil has pushed him to and suggested he actually is. He's, he's not centered. He's not the center of all history. He's an accessory. He's been pushed off to the side. And in order to properly repent and in order to, to fight the distractions of our life, we must correct our view of God. And it happens in two ways. Exalting God. These are, these are very similar words. And exalting God. Exalting God, A-L-T, is to make much of him. To put him back at the top and the center. Exalting God is to be under him and rejoicing in that. That will conquer and that will rebuke the devil. And let's look at our model character in this text. Let's just piece apart the verses. We have disciples that are believing the serpent, that are believing those who don't receive God, that are listening to the murmurs, that are allowing the creep, that are feeding their discontentment and looking across the river and wanting. And then we have John the Baptist who answers them immediately when they say this. And he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Not even one thing. So what's the first thing, before we get into that, what that means, what's the first thing John's doing? He's rebuking and he's shutting down the conversation. There is no good that can come from following that rabbit trail, from taking that thread out of that ball of yarn. All you're going to do is unravel the whole thing and have a huge mess. And that's exactly what the devil wants. When we begin to say, oh, you have a good point. Maybe Jesus Christ is not the Savior. Maybe this Bible is not the Word of God. Maybe the interpretations are wrong. Or maybe there's a way for me to have my cake and eat it too and get the Christianity I want. Be very careful of that conversation. You, it's not that you can't have good discussions about what is true in Scripture. It's that in doing so, you need to have a mightily high view of God. And realize that he has delivered Scripture that is breathed out that is spirit-breathed, that is true. And John says, I know what I know. I'm going to shut you down so quick. He says, I have one mission here, and I'm going to remind you of that mission. He reminds them of these cosmic sensibilities, and he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. All that you have when you're discontent and you see the one thing, the first thing you need to be reminded, the first thing that you need to say to yourself, like John, is that I'm not given that, which means what? I'm given this. The huge tool that we have, the armor that we have to fight those first murmurs is to be grateful and count the blessings that we do and then, if we have a high view of God, the things that we don't have are not just equivalent, equal options, or should-be's, or maybe if I had things. They are simply not given right now. 
They are simply not given, so you don't need to be distracted by them right now. He says, you just can't receive it unless it's given. He has a high view. God is in control. He says, remember that God is the giver. And you are given what he desires for you to have. If we have a high view of God, if we see God as Jesus the Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, we see God as not just all-powerful but all-love, and we've been given a visible picture of him. He is the best of us, as we should say. He's the most loving of us. Could you honestly look Jesus in the face and say, you don't love me because you haven't given me that? That's what you're doing when you're discontent. Megan always reminds me of this. Guys, I have struggled with this. She just puts it really simply. She goes, John, you're comparing apples to oranges, right? We see what's happening across the river, and we've painted what it means for us and how good it is and why we should have it. And we have no clue most of the time about what it took to get there, what it actually is, what it actually feels like. And to know that those oranges that we're comparing ourselves are doing the same thing often. And they're looking around too. That They don't have it all together. And it just reminds you to stay put where you are. Worship the God that has given his son to die for you, that loves you. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this about it. It says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And then, once we have that view of God who is the giver of all good things, who has given us exactly what he desires and is all-powerful so he can give exactly what he desires, so we must be in the right spot. Get that? We must be in the right spot right now. I guarantee you, everybody listening to this, God has you exactly where he wants you. Then, once we've exalted God in that high place, we can do this in our repentance. We can revisit our commitments. We can remember what we signed up for. I painted this target on my back because I thought it was worth it, because I thought it was true. And instead of trying to get out of it, we can begin to armor up. And how do we do that? We exult in God. We have placed him above and we have centered him where he ought to be. We have rebuked the devil every time he tries to take him out of that spot. And we sit under him on our knees. And what do we do? Yes, we may lament. Yes, we may cry. But here's what exulting means. It means to rejoice. It's so counterintuitive. In our culture, we think if you have put something over you, you are a fool. You have enslaved yourself. You are a person that just likes to be abused. We have so discolored the idea of authority. And the Bible actually says, no, if you don't do that, the creep has set in, and guess where you are destined? You are destined to hell. It's just so clear. 
It's right here in this. It's right here in this chapter. The wrath of God will remain on him who does not obey and believe in the Son of God. So the best possible thing is to put God over us and exalt exalt under him. John John the Baptist does this in a few ways. He says, you yourselves bear witness to me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. That's his recommitment line. He's saying, you told me that you wanted to proclaim him with me. Why are you wanting to be over there now? He's saying, this is what we signed up for. And then he is saying, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Differentiation, exaltation. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I, I spent some time trying to think of, a, of an illustration that would be relevant or, you know, cool or pull from some pop culture reference, and I just couldn't do it, you guys. John has the reference right here. He's very clear. He says, we need to see that Christ gets the bride. I'll talk about that more in a second. But the first, that we are the groom's best friend. We're the best man. We're the second in line. And in our repentance, after we say, I am beyond content with my assignment, which is the first line of defense, putting ourselves in right position, we then say, because I'm in the right position, I am second. I'm the best man. That I am put here to prepare everyone to know Jesus, and that is exactly where he wants me to be. John the Baptist is like the anti-Nicodemus. This story is a contrast to Nicodemus because in Nicodemus, here we had a church leader who did not want to decrease and so left. And so removed God from that center place. Was not willing to be the best man. Was not willing to give it up. And we contrast that with John the Baptist who says, I'm more than willing to be a nobody. If it means you'll know Jesus. I'm more than willing to be less eloquent. To have less eyeballs on me. To have less disciples following me. If it means that those disciples are following Jesus. The best man is the one who stands to the side of the groom as he gets the girl. Looking to him and smiling at the sweetness of that love. Who prepares and does all of the, all of the work, all of the planning that the groom and the bride don't have time to do. To just try and make it the best it can possibly be. And then, the next thing he's saying is he's, he's, he's essentially then saying there that I am disappearing. That to follow Jesus is to be a disappearing person. Just take that in for a second. This week, were you a disappearing person? Did your discontentment 
come from wanting to be a disappearing person and not getting it? Or did it come from wanting to be a bigger person and not getting it? Repentance is committing to what we signed up for, which is to decrease so that Jesus may be bigger and more visible. But the other thing that's a little bit confusing about this metaphor is that Christ gets the bride. And what do we know the bride is? We know that the bride is the church. So here's, here's what's a little confusing. And I'm not going to try and make perfect sense out of it, but I want you to just chew on this for a second. How is it that we are both the bridegroom and the bride as Christians? You, you could read this text and say, well, John, John the Baptist isn't like me. He's like a preacher. He's a proclaimer. That's more like you. I'm not like that. I'm more the bride. I don't have to do that stuff. You have to do that. I just don't think that's a fair reading. I, get, I see why you'd like to do that. Um, I think we need to realize that we are both the bridegroom and the bride. As, as a metaphor, let's look at what that might mean. That means that while we are off to the side and we are second and we are laying the groundwork and we are sharing and making him big and us small, that he is also committing his full and eternal love to us at the altar. That he is committing his promise to us and that he will care for us in sickness and in health, as we would say. And I think what we get here and we haven't talked about this a lot in this, in this section, is the Trinitarian goodness of God. That when we think of God, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are, in essence, exalting and exulting with each other constantly in an infinite loop. That Jesus the Son is exulting and rejoicing in his Father, not questioning the design that he has made for him and the path that he has given him. That there is this, this love that is so big that it can include all of those facets within it. Megan showed me a, a Spurgeon quote that just sums it up. It says, when God's will is your will, you will have your will. It's not what we want to hear. What we want to hear is that I get my will that isn't God's will. That I can have the thing that he hasn't given me. But the acceptance and repentance is a peace and a joy. Not just a, not just a complacency. Not just a, a listless frustration, imprisonment at the blot that God has given you. But an utter exaltation of his goodness. A rejoicing that he has married you. That he is committed to you. And that with him, and this is where I hope we can marry those two illustrations, that with him, like the married couples we so look up to, they are not simply looking at each other, admiring each other, and essentially navel-gazing, because they're one flesh, right? Isn't that just the same as looking at yourself at that point? No, that the church is a married couple who turns outward to the world, and married together as one flesh goes and influences with all of their love and spreads it as far as they can. That's what being the bridegroom and the bride together looks like. That's what exalting and exulting looks like. That we are married and we turn outward as a church so confident 
in the person we are married to, in the goodness that we have for eternity, that we can step out into the world and just share that overflowing love. So as we think of particular applications today, I want to bring up one additional small point in the narrative. This is, this is John's, um, John has two bits in this book. John the Baptist has two bits in the Gospel of John. It's confusing all the Johns going on. Um, he has what's called an inaugural, like an initial sermon. And then he has this. First, last. That's it. There's just a first and a last. There's no middle. That's all he's got. And I thought, to, I thought to myself, thinking about John the Baptist, thinking about, am I as a preacher, am I as a pastor, reading into this and trying to live as John the Baptist is living, if this was my last sermon, and I'm not saying it is, right? It's not. But if this was my last sermon, you're all getting worried. If this was my last sermon, and I had to give you all just to Jesus, Right? Just out to Jesus, send you across the river. Would you be prepared for that? To just go and find Jesus. And if you're thinking to yourself, there are things, John, that, that you, as the one who jumps in to rebuke the distractions, John the Baptist is the one who jumps in to rebuke. John the Baptist is the only guy who seems to have his head screwed on straight in this story. Is there ways that I can be helpful to you? That you would see an urgency in the cosmic battle. And if you sit in this and you go, I'm just, yes, there is something I'm not prepared with. That you would not treat yourself as having a long timeline to get it done. That you would not say, you will not surely die, right? And believe that, what the snake says. But say, I believe that the wrath of God is a real thing. That I believe God's curses are put there just as his blessings to draw me towards him. And so my specific application is just to ask you this week, are there things where you feel, are there areas where you feel the creep has taken over and you need a partner to do battle in? And I would be happy to sit down with you. I would be happy to sit down and, as John the Baptist, first rebuke those things, but then simply decrease so that Christ may increase in your life, whatever that may look like, whether that's setting you up with things that help you, whether that's pairing you up with somebody that can help you. I am not wanting to be more in all of your lives for any reason other than to rebuke sin and help you see more of Jesus so that you may eventually stand side by side with him looking out in full confidence as one that can proclaim him. Let's pray.